Hi there, I'm Ed Smith. I'm a London-based food and cookery writer. One of my cookbooks is the Borough Market Cookbook, which came out in 2018 and is packed with stories about the market and recipes inspired by the produce within it. This year, the markets have published another book called Edible Histories, which is an utterly fascinating romp through the backstories of 15 ingredients from apples and tomatoes through vinegar, herrings, pasta, strawberries and ice cream. In its own words, the book takes a reader's healthy hunger for knowledge and runs with it back through the centuries on the premise that a modicum of enlightenment and a great deal of entertainment could be found in learning not just how a particular ingredient found its way to a market store or a supermarket shelf, but how its forebears passed through space and time to exist in this form, in this place, in this moment, knowing not just where our food comes from, but where our food really comes from. I'm here today to have a chat with the author, Mark Ridaway, with both of us sitting appropriately above Borough Market with the noise and chatter of trading life below, so apologies if some of that seeps in. For nearly a decade, Mark has been the editor and publisher of the market's award-winning magazine, Market Life. He's also a historian and an accomplished writer, penning much of that magazine. Indeed, one of his columns, which looks in depth at ingredients both familiar and unfamiliar, was the genesis of this book, and this year earned him a place on the Guild of Food Writers shortlist for Best Food Writer. Mark has a real talent for meshing together centuries worth of details, facts, fine print and funny bits into eminently readable essays. Edible histories will fascinate you as you read it, and it will also provide you with anecdotes and tidbits for to recount for years to come. And so, over the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to talk with Mark about Edible Histories as a whole, the themes it covers, and its relevance to fans of produce markets like Borough Market. We'll probably go off on tangents and rambles, but that's entirely in keeping with the book and the many enlightening and entertaining stories within it. I hope you all enjoy listening in. I was thinking about the book and thought how to sum it up in one line, and I thought epic tales of everyday ingredients which help us to learn about where our food comes from. Does that cover it? That just about covers it, yeah. And um, we, go part, we go now. Yeah, part of that is on the front cover as well, so you don't have to dig too deep for that. This is a book that sort of starts with the premise that those everyday ingredients, those things that we're deeply familiar with, yeah. are, are often actually a lot more loaded with history than we could begin to imagine. Um, and I think one, one, of the, one of the reasons that I've enjoyed doing this so much is that when I started writing this, uh, writing this column originally and then this book, I had absolutely no idea how much uh, was, uh, how, how many fascinating stories could be found in something as mundane as a tomato or a strawberry. But then I guess seemingly mundane things often have yeah. very interesting stories to tell. Like most of the history that we learn is about how things like war and kings and big ideas change the world. But I, I think you don't, you don't get to be as present in people's lives as, as tomatoes and tea uh, without having seen quite a lot along the way. Yeah. Some of the foods in this, in this book genuinely change the world, you know? Um, tea and coffee and the herring and the banana... Um, they changed the landscape of the planet for, for, for better or worse, or often worse, um, or um, usually better for us, but, yeah. but, but worse for other people. Um, and there's, there's other things in here that kind of just reflect the way the world around them changed, you know, the way that we, the way that we thought about agriculture and medicine and trade and all sorts of other things. Um, 
And then I think fundamentally, there's just uh, you know when you when you when you read these stories, um, you find out about how uh, how people ate in the past, and yeah. you know if, if there's one thing that we we know without any doubt whatsoever and you know your your own instagram feed is 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 a is testament to this is that people are interested in what other people have for dinner Definitely. um and uh, that's as true looking back yeah thousands of years as, and amazing as how it's evolved actually i'd love to we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit i think but it's definitely enlightening reading the history yeah in a way that isn't um it's not it's not boring to 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 the to the lay person that doesn't want to read history books all the time this is a book about food that's really interesting and involves and and also adds to your knowledge about as you say tea yeah yeah and i i think what's i think what's nice about it too is that because because each of the stories is completely self-contained um like each chapter stands alone yeah. so you can basically read them in any order you want Definitely. um it's been quite interesting actually seeing like uh, the people who have read it so far uh, finding out which chapter they've read first. Right. Yeah. So, you de- it's a definitely a pick and choose your, your yeah. the thing that like draws your interest straight. So what, away. what did you start with? Tea. With tea. Right. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, tea, tea and coffee seem to be the things that that, that people have plumped for more often right. than anything else. Right. Um, which I think demonstrates just how fundamental they are to to, life. to our lives. <laughs> yeah. Because like I for one cannot uh, imagine a world where uh, I w- wasn't drinking tea and coffee every single day, and I think that's. Uh, but you know, in in itself, that's 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 insane. Like we're talking about a, an, an African bean and a, and a and a Chinese leaf yeah. that are completely embedded in everything that we do. So um, much so that you don't necessarily think about them and where they're from when you're drinking it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, a, a very large number of people, including myself, hadn't had would have no idea that coffee is. You know, I'd, I'd always presumed that coffee was a South American plant. Right. You know, um, and it's absolutely not. It's from it's from Africa and, and the Arabian Peninsula. I think one of one of the other, because I think because of the uh, the day to day nature of the things that are discussed in here, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about about doing it yeah. is that um, the uh, although there's you know there's fifteen chapters, there's thousands of like individual stories in here, and there's barely a day goes by where the opportunity doesn't arise to just share one of those. So yeah. like. Not because you're walking around wanting to share, but because something's reminded you. Exactly, of yeah. So yeah. pretty much every every meal that gets served up, there's yeah. something that that can trigger me, boring on about um, about the kind of historic hinterland of that. Go on, then, bo- bore me, bore me now. <laughs> okay, so um, every day I drink tea. So I think one of, one of my one of my favourite stories in here is actually actually relates to the very the very first mention of tea in a European document um and it and it came from uh, in the 16th century um a, a venetian magistrate called giovanni ramusio um ramusio told a story of meeting one of his one of his friends um a guy called haji muhammad who was a, a persian trader um now this persian trader haji muhammad uh, had made his not fortune but but made a living buying dried rhubarb root from yeah. China and transporting it to Europe where it was considered to be a medicine. Yeah. Um, and great fortunes were built on dried rhubarb. Um, now, Ramusio and Haji Mohammed went for dinner in uh, Murano, which is uh, a little island outside of Venice, beautiful place where they make the glass. glass That's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and a, a couple of Ramusio's kind of cosmopolitan Venetian friends were there too. And they were all, they were chatting. Um, and um, uh, Haji Mohammed 
uh, was explaining about his last trip to China um, and how when he was in China, um, he had seen the people there drinking this drink. Um, he, he said that they, they make use of another plant, or rather its leaves, which the people call chai. Um, and he, he was explaining how the Chinese would happily swap a whole sack of rhubarb for just an ounce of chai. Um, which must have seemed strange to them at the time, but right now the opposite is... Yeah, absolutely. So this this would have where rhubarb was just the thing, yeah. um, and the idea that there was something that was better than rhubarb that the Chinese valued more than rhubarb would have been fascinating, and to a rhubarb salesman, quite alarming. Um, re- I have to say, reading that, I did think um, uh, a interesting, and b a quite fancy trying dried rhubarb tea. No, yeah, yeah right. I mean? They have a. That should be something you should bring back. It could be our fame and fortune, actually. <laughs> the reintroduction of dried rhubarb root into, well, the, into the tea houses of Great Britain. Indeed, yeah. Well, what I really like about this is that, is, that, um, is that Haji Muhammad explained that the Chinese had predicted that if tea was known in our parts, uh, merchants without doubt would no longer want to buy rhubarb. So he was basically, he was the cart salesman yeah. who had been around the world and seen and the, the motor car. Yeah. You know, um, and he was um, he was obviously slightly concerned about this. But what I love about it is that anybody reading this in 1559 um, th- would not really wouldn't have had a clue what he was talking about. Right. But a hundred years later, the yeah. floodgates had opened, and, totally. and, and and Europe was full of tea. It reminds me of the kind of the close context of uh, growing up um, in the 80s and 90s. We're probably still at a, a phase in Britain where olive oil was sold in. In the farmers as well, that's always the story that you hear recounted and someone saying, this tastes delicious, you should put it on your food. So a British person sounds completely mad. And it must have been, you know, there's uh, loads of stories through the book of the evolution of food stuffs that are so commonplace to us now, or less so, so with herring and eel, for example. And so I think it's a really good way into those topics. One of the things that I liked, um, and I think I, think I know a reasonable bit about food and the origins of different ingredients, but... Um, you know, for example, potatoes coming from Peru, chilies being from Mexico. But I, for some reason, I'd never really thought of the tomato as being origin Central America as well and, and Mexico. just feels like such an Italian and, and Spanish product to me. But reading through the tomato chapter just got me loads of, uh, well, updated me really on, on, on the details of the tomato and um, how it took even the Italians and Spanish a bit of time, but especially the British um, thought it was quite an evil herbal product that um, herbalists would plant and no one else wanted to eat. And that's like, again, something that's so fundamental to what we eat now in all its forms. The tomato has got this process of getting into our diets just as olive oil or tea does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think think what's really staggering about the tomato is the the fact that, you know, until the beginning of the 16th century, um, no one in Europe had ever seen a tomato. No one outside of Mexico and yeah. a small part of northern South America had ever seen a tomato. And yet, within a couple of hundred years, it's not just... Uh, as you say, it took a while yeah, um, for this to happen. Like, but it's become ubiquitous, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, the, the, this idea that globalisation is a is a modern concept right. is blown away by food. Yeah, totally. You know, that, the, that definitely comes through from... But, but tell me, how, how did you... How did you write it? What was the process? Why did you choose these 15 ingredients? I chose these 15 ingredients, I think, largely because um, they, I think they offer uh, variety. So what, what, what this doesn't claim to be is a study of the 15 most, imp- like right. most important ingredients okay. in, in human history. If, if we were to do that, 
uh, the potato would be in here. And salt it's not. and cod. Yeah, salt yeah. and cod would be yeah. in here, but they're not. So I wanted I wanted some things that um, that definitely did have a major impact on on the world. Yeah. But I also wanted some that didn't. Yeah. That um, maybe they don't get their place in the limelight as often. Exactly. As tea does. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think a lot of people a lot of people probably broadly know the history of tea. Yeah. But but I but I wonder whether so many people broadly know the history of ice cream. You know. No. Um, because it's just not one of those yeah. things that we think about. I also I wanted some I wanted some ingredients that have a bit of kind of heft to the narrative, mm-hmm. you know the 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 awful crimes against humanity that were committed in the name of coffee, right. you know, um, but also have some things that um, didn't have such dark backstories, yeah. <laughs> you know, pasta never did anyone any harm, um, but I think it still has an interesting story to tell. Definitely. I mean, you, you're actually one of the few examples, and I, I can say this because I am one of a history graduate putting his degree into into use. <laughs> how did you do it? How did you write? How did you write? <laughs> yeah, I think um, I, I was a history graduate too, and probably like you, I studied history um, largely because I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do with my life. It's my passion, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I actually went further and I stayed at university and I, 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 um, I managed to get funding from the British Academy to do a master's in medieval history. Um, I, I, when I ended, when I ended that master's degree, there was absolutely no sense in which it might be a vocational qualification at all. Um, so I think what's lovely about this is that. Um, the British Academy's judgment in uh, giving me that funding has finally, well twenty years later, been justified. Um, but I think a lot of the um, a, a lot of what I learned then has been really useful. I think one, one of the things with studying medieval history is that it demands that you go back to the source material, yeah. the the primary sources, um, and get yourself into archives and read documents. And that's the bit that I really love. Uh, and I think it's particularly important with food that you do that because so much of the really interesting stuff is actually quite mundane in a way, yeah. you know. And also it's important to that because so much of the things that we think we know about food is anecdotal and, and Chinese whispers. That's right, yeah. Uh, and and sort right. of uh, builds in that way. Actually, I was reading about soft serve ice cream of the day, separate to yours, and saw that um, at one point people thought that Margaret Thatcher was... <laughs> it's fundamental to the production of yeah. This is that's one of the myths. A chemist that, yeah, that's right. That's one of those myths that's travelled around the world that Margaret Thatcher invented uh, Mr. Whippy, and she didn't. Um, but there are, there are many, many others like that, yeah. and actually cutting through the the that kind of vast carapace of misinformation that exists around food it was one of the it was one of the central tasks, but also one of the most enjoyable. Um, right. uh, with this, and, and on a kind of a more like serious point, I guess. The thing that historians would always say is that you can't know enough about the present and the future without studying the past, and and that's what this book is doing in a in a in a light touch way, in a serious but <laughs> can you be serious and light touch? I think you can. Yeah, serious, I hope and, so. serious and entertaining way. Um, and uh, do you think there's anything from those from the things you've looked at that help understand or predict? food trends for example no um <laughs> i i don't think i don't think there's anything i don't think there's anything here in here that can help us predict the future but what the history of food shows us is that whilst the decisions that we make on a personal level about mm-hmm. what we eat yeah. may seem um small and they may seem uh, to ha- to have no consequence outside of our own 
uh, meal, yeah. um, the aggregation of those choices can have a, an impact that can have an, an example of that. Well, so so if you think of, if we if we go back to tea again, the fact that the fact that Britain embraced tea in the way that it did yeah. um, in the 17th and 18th centuries, and the the the, the scale of demand for tea. That that suddenly was um, was brought upon China from from the British. Yeah. It, it ended up causing wars with China. It ended up it ended up causing the um, the destruction of the large swathes of native yeah. landscape in and India. I guess so to grow, like, for now, that's that comes down to your like choices about, for example, uh, well the growth of the avocado and, and almond market and soybeans and how that destroys huge areas of land in South America, in Brazil, or um, the amount of water it takes to, to, to groundlands. It, it... Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that, you know, you look at the tea in the 17th century and you look at avocados in the early 21st century and, yeah. and you, can see, um, you can see that those, those choices do make a difference. Do make a difference. One of the another sort of theme that came out from me is that whilst often the origin of ingredients seems to come from the Americas or from Asia, so much of certainly what we do now is um, founded in Italian and Spanish technique. Is that is that fair? Do you think? Well, yeah, I think I think what actually what's really interesting throughout all this is the is the centrality, particularly of Italy. Mm. Um, it was something that really surprised me. I I don't think I'd ever really thought about how much of our food has been channeled through Italy in one, in, in one way or another. Mm. So if you go back to the ancient world, obviously Rome was the, was the great global hub um, that joined East and West. So a lot of things like apples and onions, domesticated apples and onions came to us through Rome. Um, and then later on, Italy was um, very much involved in the, um, in the, in the spice trade mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and the trade gen- and trade generally with them. Um, with the east so things like cinnamon uh, which i write about came to us through venetians yeah um later on and you mentioned mexico um at, at the point that mexico was being was being invaded by the spanish southern italy and 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 spain were joined together as part of the habsburg right. empire yeah. so so a lot of the um, a lot of the american ingredients that came to europe came to Spain but they also came to Italy and, mm. and there's something in the culture of Italy that, that I guess because it had been this kind of gateway for centuries yeah. adopted those things really readily right so Italy was the first to really embed tomato into its cuisine in a really quite complex way yeah um, and then you know later on when the um, Italian economy was really struggling in the 19th century Italians uh, migrated all over all over the world right. themselves. So a, a lot of Italians came to Britain in the 19th century and they brought their food tastes yeah. with them. So yeah. pasta and ice cream and coffee, espresso coffee, yeah. are things that are now fundamental, fundamental to what we do. Totally. Um, and, and yeah, it's all, it's all Italy. <laughs> all Italy. I think, um, but I guess that kind of moves on to thinking, it's a, glo- it's a book about global produce, but perhaps seen through the eyes of the British cook. Yeah, I think that, right? yeah, I think that's very right. I, when I set out to do this, what I what I actually tried to do was to make it a like a, a truly globe to make each chapter truly global. Yeah. But it's 
like it's impossible. You cannot you cannot consistently squeeze six thousand years of history into four thousand words um, if you're trying to tackle the whole world. Right. So so I have I have necessarily kind of focused in on on the British perspective. So so ingredients often start somewhere else and kind of end up here. Right. Um, so do you think we've not made the same contribution to the to global cuisine that others have? There's obviously the, we, there's always the classic you know British food is rubbish, which I think we can kind of say is an, is an old fashioned approach now. But at the same time, looking even further back to medieval to medieval start. Yeah, I think Britain's influence on global food has been has been minimal, except in as the, a marketplace. As a, yeah, so so the Britain's main influence on global food was when the British Empire was using the rest of the world to produce its food. Yeah. So um, and to grow its empire. Yeah, right. basically. Yeah, yeah. So so Britain's influence was one of taking food from elsewhere. Right. Uh, but there's not many. I don't think there's many. British, there's not many things in if, if somebody was writing a similar book yeah. in another country about how food's got to them there aren't many that would reference Britain very much apart from the United States sure um, sure we'll, uh, have to, we'll have to say, say we, we give ball, ball, ball game sports to, uh, ball game to sports. the world in return for all of the food <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely um, but I think I think what's really interesting about Britain and it's something that you still you know, I, I think all of us would still see in our culture now is this kind of weird combination of openness and suspicion. Mm. Um, so, if you look back through the, the history of food, our our, um, our willingness to embrace such weird foreign things as tea and coffee yeah. and turkey and bananas and spices these were these were embraced. There's a hunger for them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and a, a real kind of particularly the tea and coffee, just the the fervor with which they were met is yeah. is is incredible. But then at the same time, there's this underlying suspicion of foreign vegetables, right. particularly foreign vegetables. Um, so what's an example of that? Oh, I mean the tomato, as you yes, say. Yeah, like yeah, you yeah, know, yes. whilst whilst Italians were whilst Italians were like inventing like modern Mediterranean cuisine by putting tomatoes in pretty much everything with yeah. their olive oil and salt. Um, we were refusing steadfastly to ever eat. Sounds mad, doesn't it? Because there's some, there's some there's some ingredients that obviously have to be transformed by cooking. But a raw tomato sliced is <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the the other that made me, that really makes me laugh is garlic. Right. Um, so so that old trope about you know the the, the British not liking garlic is um, it's, it's true. very true. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a period in the early medieval era where um, a lot of garlic was eaten because it was considered to be medicinal um but over time it dropped out of our diet altogether there's a lovely quote from john evelyn in 1699 um who said that we absolutely forbid it entrance into our salading for reason of its intolerable rankness um and that the only people who should eat it are northern rustics especially those who live in moist places um the only other people he thought should eat it are sailors <laughs> but to be short is not for ladies palates nor those who caught them and uh, that was very much the prevailing view of garlic in this country until pretty deep into the 20th century yeah, yeah. um but also there I suppose there is there are ingredients here that um do feel synonymous with Britain now strawberries for example you've got a whole chapter on on them yeah absolutely yeah yeah I think I think if there's one that, well if there's two things that that come out from the book about that the British are good at uh, war and gardening I would say <laughs> I would say are the two and um, the, the strawberry is a very good example of of, of the latter right. um, so 
I think I think the, um, the the modern strawberry, the strawberries that are eaten not just in Britain but all over the rest of the world, um, were really developed by British horticulturalists um, in in the nineteenth century. Um, there was a there was a real sort of systematic approach right. to to um, I guess apples to, as well. Yeah, apples apples were, were even though obviously it's yeah gone around the world from starting in the east. It's yeah, but the, but the British the British were exceptional in the uh, f- creation and fostering of, yeah. of of apple varieties in in it was 1877 the the royal horticultural society had a had a um, a congress um and they logged british apple varieties yeah. and there were over 1500 so, um, I, I always when i first found out that um if you for example planted the seed of a granny smith in your garden and it grew into a tree, it wouldn't give you Granny Smith apples. That's right, yeah. This is like, that's, it's just mind-blowing when you first realise that. Yeah. And and that explains the huge variety of them, but also makes it mad that uh, if you walk around a certainly supermarket these days, you tend to see one of four different apples and that's it. Yeah, all year round. And not, and, yeah. and, and and almost none of them are British as well. Yeah. That's a great that's a great tragedy. They're, they tend to be from New Zealand or... or um, uh, Australia, which I suppose brings us back in a way to so where we're sitting now above a produce market where you can find at the right time of year apples that are grown in Kent that are of different varieties to to, to the four that that we see in the supermarkets. And um, I suppose something about the book is it, it's a book for anyone and any food lover anywhere. Um, but if you happen to be the kind of person who likes to shop face to face and walk around a market, you, you it's, it's the right kind of borough market was the right person to publish this book. Um, and also, I think I found that um, you know we talked about the origin of ingredients and where they come from. There's a bit of a mirror there with shopping in a market because marketplaces are this place for foods from around the world or or from next door to come together, and you do have to walk around and buy different things. And that's um, seems appropriate in that respect that you've got a sort of miscellaneous group of ingredients that we can all be fascinated by. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think I think the other thing about markets, which um, particularly this market that uh, makes it appropriate for this book is that what markets do, a lot of food markets, is offer a corrective to some of the problems with, in inverted commas, progress mm. that often come into the last paragraphs of each of the chapters. I think we see we see through this this book how for many, many, many centuries the way that food was produced the way that food was transported the way that food was bought evolved at a glacial pace yeah um and then in the over the course of 100 years everything changed so the way that the way that food was produced went from um, being essentially agricultural to becoming industrial um and whilst there are good things that come from that there are also bad things yeah. that come from that. If yeah. if you value things like variety, if you value uh, flavour, if you value the, the origin ethics, story, yeah. yeah, and the origin story, absolutely right. Um, what a lot of market traders do, uh, certainly a lot of the market traders here, is work with food and look look at food in a way that is quite um, that it provides an echo of those yeah. earlier approaches. Um, so the food is eaten and provided when it's in season, not not all year round. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a real emphasis on on food 
being at its best when it's when it's here. I, mean, I think you, you touched on the point there about how the chapters tend to end up in a well in the contemporary space, um, and I, I like they're never preachy, um, uh, and they're not always positive. Uh, but I think that's a good a good thing to think about because it comes back to the knowing where your food's from, so you can understand and make and make a choice about what you're eating. Um, eels was a really good example to me of uh, reading about a, an ingredient that I love yep. to eat that I know. Uh, is endangered um, uh, but it's really quite a cloudy topic the like, sustainability of eels you never quite understand and then um, in some ways that's reflected by the fact that as I read in in your chapter no one really understands enough about eels full stop like how how and where they breed and it's, it's a really fascinating topic but one that just continues to keep the idea going around in my mind as to what, whether I should be eating it at all, where where we buy it from, and how we, how we buy it. Yeah, I think that the eel the eel chapter in here was the one that blew my mind the most the most uh, the most thoroughly. I, right. I, I had absolutely no idea about eels um, before I before I started uh, researching this, um, and it is yeah as you say it took it took thousands of years for people to to start to understand the sex life of the eel um but all, all eels are all european eels are um are spawned in the sargasso sea yeah. out by the caribbean um and what that means is that any eel that we eat here is an eel that won't reproduce um and that was fine when eels were plentiful, plentiful yeah. but um due to probably a vast number of factors none of which have been completely understood yet but are probably related to climate change as well as overfishing uh eels are highly endangered now so the bottom line is that yeah if you you, you have to ask the questions yeah, yeah, yeah. you have it, to it, it feels like we're at a kind of a, i don't know it's a tipping point but certainly a crucial stage in the human life cycle of knowing where our food comes and the effect that it makes that that consumption has on the world around us and now's the time to really start thinking about about that origin and, and what choices you want to make okay mark i think um we could talk about uh onions and cinnamon and apples for ages but then there wouldn't be enough mystery that's right <laughs> left in, in edible histories which uh, gen- generally uh, um we're here to talk about it but I, I do think it was a brilliant read well done um and everyone should to, to get a copy for themselves and, and read through. Is there anything, a little tidbit, a taster that you can leave that people have to find? A taster to leave. Okay, so so I think I think um, uh, I think one of the best things in the whole of food history um, is the fact that the um, the Frenchman who brought the Chilean strawberry uh, back to Europe um, uh, and the Chilean strawberry was fundamental to the um, the development of the modern European strawberry. Um, that Frenchman who was a spy who'd been sent out there on a spying mission his surname was Strawberry <laughs> and if there's uh, if Frezier in French and I think if there's uh, if there's one thing that uh, should make it clear that this book needs to be read is to find out more about that um, because I think once you know that the consumption of strawberries will never again be mundane <laughs> Life-changing. And what a cliffhanger. Uh, <laughs> go and find out more about Mr. Frezier, is that how you say Frezier, yeah. Frezier. Um, in Borough Market, Edible History's Epic Tales 
of Everyday Ingredients by Mark Ridaway. Thanks, Mark. It's great to chat. Thank you.